Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am one of your hosts, Ian Rice, and with me, as always, young David Hudson. David, how are you, sir? Great, Ian. How about yourself? Same old, same old. Just uh, navigating my way through the Black Crows universe, as we always do. Some uh, tour dates on the uh, on the books. I think, uh, you know, I think we all wish it was something other than Shake Your Money Maker and the hits, but yeah, I wish they would... Uh, Drop the shake your money maker thing and go back to typical Black Crow shows. Yeah, I was a little bummed out at first, but I, I, then somebody pointed out that they did have a two year deal with Live Nation, so perhaps this is just rounding out that deal. You know, the album thing I think should be special. I want a Southern Harmony box set reissue with you know some live shows and the unreleased tracks and stuff like that, but I don't necessarily want a Southern Harmony tour. I, the whole idea of doing an album beginning to end for an entire tour, I'm not the biggest fan of that. So if you're going to do that, do New York, Chicago, San Francisco, maybe Atlanta, you know, places where they're, they have a big following, but then the rest of the shows, let them be a typical Black Crow show. I'd like to see them stretch it out. Let's see what Isaiah can do with the jams. We know what Rich, Chris, and, and Sven are capable of. Um, Isaiah Mitchell's obviously a great guitar player. You can just listen to Earthless until the guy can absolutely tear it up, but... Would like to see the set list mixed up. Um, do something for the diehards. Uh, if you don't do a shed, you know, do up to a three thousand seat um, theater or something like that. Because um, you know, it's people like you, me, and most of the people that listen to this podcast. We're the ones that kept that engine running for a long time. Yeah, that is true. And you know, I, I will admit too, like I'm not really interested in seeing you know the further albums done up like this Shaky Money Maker tour. You know, for an entire tour. I, I thought the Shaky Money Maker thing because it was an anniversary run and and it was an interesting thing to to go back to those songs that they hadn't played, you know, really uh, since since the album came out at least, and some of those songs not really uh, at all. Yeah, it was great to hear Strutting Blues. I thought their take on it was great. Joe Robineau really shined in the opening part of it. Yeah, and it was, I think it was a nice way to to break in the new members of the band and to you know there was a stage production on that was really cool. You know, there were a lot of things I took away from that tour and, and really enjoyed. And uh, you know, it's if they're if they're finishing out their 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 run with the Live Nation deal, that's cool. But after that, I'd really like to see, like you were saying, you know, some some return to the the roots of this band, which are you know varied set lists and stretching out some of the songs. And you know, I mean, you, like you said, you have a very capable bunch of new players that would really be interesting to see what they can add to those jam sections, you know? Yeah. Do a proper, my morning song and wiser time. And let's, uh, let's break out exit feathers, title song, all the good stuff, Ian. All right, everybody. So let's get to the topic at hand. What do you say, David, this week, we're of course doing another entry into our under review series. We're doing an album that technically wasn't officially released. And that is the tall album that by rights should have come out after 1992's Southern Harmony. and But instead we got 
Amorica in 1994, but the the album was put out in 2006 as part of the Lost Crows package. So we we consider it a uh, an official release, wouldn't you say, David? Yeah, it's you know obviously there's some songs that got left off that were recorded, but for the purposes of this discussion, it's going to be the songs that were released on Lost Crows. And joining us today, David, very 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 special guest, someone we've been wanting to have on the program for a long time, somebody that's going to make us look foolish, I think, with his. Uh, Wonderful uh, opinions and commentary. Please welcome Mr. Ray Permi to the show. Ray, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing good, but don't set me up like that. <laughs> I mean, they, they don't call him the professor. They don't call him the professor for for no reason. Ray is a. Uh, I mean, he might as well be almost a permanent member of the uh, R4 Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews podcast. He's on there all the time. Uh, Ray and I did Southern Harmony. He's done Amorca, and um, he's on that podcast. Aaron Martell is the is the host of that. But I'll, I'll tell you this, Ray, I told Aaron this, um, I think when I met Aaron in Nashville at rock and pod, it was a couple years ago in October, you guys did four straight episodes of the Rolling Stones. Oh yeah. Those are my first four ones. It was, yeah. it was the best musical analysis I've ever heard on a podcast. It, it really was. That's what made me a fan of that, of that podcast. Somebody had sent it to me and said, Hey, I think it's when, maybe when we, I fr- maybe when y'all did a Mork or something like that, somebody sent it to me. And so then I started looking back and I saw that you did, um, y'all did Exile, you did Tattoo You, Some Girls, and, I th- and Exile was two episodes, right? Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly? Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And uh, really got me hooked on that podcast. And that's become one of my favorite podcasts. It comes out every Friday. I was on there recently, did um, the Gaslight Anthem, and then... Uh, one of our other patrons, uh, Jason Donchus, was on there and did uh, R.E.M.'s New Adventures in Hi-Fi, and he knocked that one out of the park. So uh, how did you get mixed up with those guys? Because you're in San Antonio, and they're up in, like, Massachusetts. Yeah, they, they – um, let me see. They uh, – I emailed them because they were talking about – first of all, Aaron hates anything with talk box on it. And and I was I was just giving him a hard time because he didn't like the talk box and rocket and uh, – was it Rocket Queen or, or some GNR thing? And I just went, you don't like TalkBox? I mean, come on, dude. You're from Massachusetts. You have to love Aerosmith. Right. And Aerosmith is all TalkBox and, and Walk This Way. What are you doing? And then they, they read my review on the air and they were like, we got to get this guy on. <laughs> so I reached out to him and said, you know, what do I got to do? And he's like, get a get a Yeti. And uh, like, what music do you like? And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm a blues-based guy. I love the Stones. I love Zeppelin. I love... The crows. These are that's my spot. That's my wheelhouse. And uh, they invited me on to do the 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 four things on the stones because he said he was going to be doing exile. And I'm like, you got to let me on. That's my favorite album. And uh, I did that. And the first one was kind of for me. I was I was really nervous and didn't really know what to say or or how how they did. It. I thought they would listen to the songs a little bit before you start talking about them and kind of went in cold and and uh, I didn't really. I thought I was really bad on the first one. And then the second one, he was, they were texting me while I was doing it. They're like, man, God, you're bringing this. Who, well, how do you know this stuff? And I'm like, I'm a reader. I have Stones, Zeppelin, and unfortunately, there's really not a lot on the Crows. So there's one book. Um, I really need the other guys to start writing some stuff so yeah. I can devour it. Because I, I think I've gone through hard to handle, like, about five times. Well, we've, wow. we've, there's a certain writer that I'm trying to twist his arm to do one. Uh, but I'm not getting very far, but, uh, yeah, but I, I, I seriously, I love that. Po- I love it. You know, I love it when you're not on there, that those are good, but the ones when you're on there, it's usually something that's in my wheelhouse. I will tell you this. One of the things I appreciate about Aaron, it is no telling week to week what album he's going to do. No, he's listening to some dogs. 
Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's every it's everything from like you know something like Carol King to Slayer. Um, and I, I mean, I listen to a little bit of everything. I appreciate that. Obviously, we're a podcast that only focuses on one band, so it's going to sound a little hypocritical when I say this. But a lot of podcasts, it's just like the same year span, the same genre, and there's no, mm-hmm. you know, like I tell people, like I remember one day I was like, I'm just going to catalog what I listened to today. It was like Megadeth, Wilco, Widespread Panic. You know, I mean, it's a little bit of everything. And so I feel like Aaron touches all those bases. And you can tell, you know, there's some stuff I know he listens to, he doesn't care for it, but he still puts the time into it, and his analysis is does not wane because it's an album or a band he doesn't like. Yeah, he does. He does. And that's why I wasn't on that Gaslight Anthem album, because I couldn't get through it. So it just wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't mine. So I, I couldn't, I wanted to do it, and I'm like, I can't, I can't do this one. I just, I don't, I'm not a big Springsteen guy, so. See, I'm not, and, I, that's what's weird. I'm not either. That was that was a band that just hit me at the right. I was in the right frame of mind, and it hit me. And uh, which stuff happens to me like that happened to me not too long ago with a band called Manchester Orchestra. They're an alternative band out of uh, Atlanta, and just mm-hmm. I don't know. It's weird. There's no explanation sometimes on things. I, I know you like what you like. See, I love Steely Dan, and I love Van Halen. Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, now you're speaking my language. Yeah, I got to meet them yeah. way back when. Oh, excellent, man. Which I was uh, a little Halen, a little punk kid, Van Halen or Van Hagar? Oh, I don't, I don't do, I don't do Diet Van Halen. So <laughs> I'm not a big Hagar fan. Never was. Um, no, I met them in 1979. They they played in the Cleveland Music Hall, and um, in August it was right before school, and uh, I saw an ad in the the Scene magazine that they were going to make an appearance at the Peaches Record Store. So I rode my bike down to Peaches Record Store where they were going to appear. And I was only like I was 12 going on 13 or 13 going on 14, whatever. And uh, I had to buy another album to, to meet him. And I was broke. I was just a kid with a, a, a paper route. And um, I didn't have that. So but I noticed that the I, I just waited around because they were in there and I could see him. But after the crowds all left about half hour, hour later, after everybody kind of cleared out, I was the only one that was still there in the parking lot. And uh, they walked over to a head shop. <laughs> Remember those? Oddly enough. <laughs> yeah. And they walked over to all, all of them went over to the head shop with their bodyguard. And I walked right in with, by, behind them. And uh, I, uh, Alex was the nicest to me. Alex and, and uh, Mike. Eddie was really shy and shorter than me as a 14 year old. Wow. And David Lee Roth was only concerned about a girl that happened to be in the, I mean, he was, he said hi, but that was about it. And, Alex signed his his uh, Heineken bottle and gave it to me with a red marker. And uh, I remember I took it home and I rode home with it. Like it was a pretty good ride. It was probably like about a good five miles on my little my little bike with a banana seat. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am riding with a Heineken bottle that still smelled like beer because it still had a little bit in the bottom of it. And not a not a cop stopped me. <laughs> Nothing happened. Uh, I got home and my mother went, "What the hell is that?" and took it away from me, and I never saw it again. Your kid? Uh-huh. So, no, no. <laughs> I should go I mean, to counseling was, for that. It was the late seventies, man. You could ride around on a bike with a beer bottle, no problems, you know. Well, you know, <laughs> I didn't have a problem with it. <laughs> so, how did you get into the Black Crows? Like, what's your history with the band? Oh man, I got into them late, regrettably late. I'd, I'd heard Hard to Handle, and I heard She Talks to Angels, and I liked them, but 
when they came out, I was in England. I was in the Air Force Station in England at the time, and um, I thought they were kind of like that Nuevo hippie thing that was coming out. Like the, you know, Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians was out, and and uh, bands like that. And I was kind of like, eh, well, you know. And it was also the time that Guns N' Roses was huge, and and uh, I was I was really into the Stones and really into Zeppelin while I was over there. And then you know, I missed the whole the whole Southern Harmony thing because I was still over there. I only heard Remedy, and I liked that song, but something nothing happened where I ever kind of got into them anymore. And uh, didn't didn't nothing on them at all. They didn't hit my radar at all until they did that thing with Jimmy Page. Wow. And then uh, I listened to that. I got that album, but it was mostly because of Jimmy Page. And like I said, I'm usually not a big cover guy, but I thought that was a good album. And I really liked I really liked the drummer. And the only thing I didn't like about him was when he did In My, In My Time of Dying, he kept hitting the hi-hat to keep time. And all I could think of was, well, Bonham didn't do that. And then I got a couple of bootlegs and I went, well, Bonham did do that lot. <laughs> okay. But I mean, I thought he really held his own. He really kind of shined through that. And then um, it wasn't till like, like I, I got a greatest hit CD from somebody and I liked it and it did, but still nothing really connected with me until freaking roll came out. Oh. And then I, I don't know how I got it, why I got it, but I got that. I got the DVD and I got the, the, uh, the CD. Oh, cause loving cup was on it. And that mm-hmm. was one of my favorite stones, deep cuts. Mm-hmm. Right, and that was that was kind of when Loving Cup became, you know, not anybody's, not just a Stones fan's good secret. And I got that, and then I was hooked. And then I got all their CDs from some used CD store, and then I found out about that, you know, they had they had songs that you couldn't get on an album, and there was a whole bunch of stuff floating around out there. And and um, I went on the Amorica Two message board. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah, they got really kind of nasty on that board. That was really not like the greatest display of humanity I've ever seen. No, but, um, <laughs> none of them are, but but we're still on them. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, but I got a CD from this guy called Feathered Fiend, and it was all their B-sides. And, and uh, it had Chevrolet, which was a great song, and Feathers, and just, you know, all that stuff. And then I, I saw that they were coming to, to uh, San Antonio. And I saw them literally uh, three days after I saw the Stones in Zilker Park. They came and played the Majestic Theater on October 25th, 2006. I remember I picked up the the Lost Crows CD because I remembered it from, you know, they talked about it in, in uh, the, the behind the music that we got two CDs in the can that we didn't even release. We spent a million bucks and no, now they're just sitting there. Well, that kind of brings us to what we're here to talk about. Today we are here to discuss at length the unreleased tall album from 1993 and it was put together as part of the lost crows package in 06 kind of mixed by paul stacy who was working with the band at the time i think there's a lot of elements of this album that stand apart from the versions on amorica and i think there's a lot of things that pale in comparison to the versions on amorica so we'll get into all that right now the first track is one that does appear later on amorica was actually the first single if i'm not mistaken and that is a conspiracy
Now, this this particular version on the Tall Sessions has a lot more percussion in it, uh, to my ears at, at any rate. And it starts off with a problem that I think actually is a thread throughout the Tall Sessions, is that I find that Chris's vocals on the Amorica versions have much more aggression to them, much more conviction to them. They're a little more, they're a little lighter on some of these Tall Session versions, and uh, I definitely noticed it on on this track because this track on its Amorica counterpart is very biting vocally, and I think it just uh, this version pales a little bit in comparison. What's your take on it, David? I don't think this was a good first choice for them to release the, the single off of um, Amorica. I think it should have been Gone or uh, or High Head Blues. Actually, um, I've always I've never had a strong opinion about this song either way. To me, it's average. It's not bad. It's not good. I actually prefer this version better than the one on Amorica. To me, this one's a little more raw and it's a little more, got a little more funk to it. The wah playing on it through the course, I really enjoy. Like when he goes, when he sings, no, um, don't neglect me. Mark's playing in the background. I feel like is, is a little more pronounced and it sounds a little cooler. The solo is a little more heady than the, you know, the, the one on Amorica, but, I've kind of always thought, and the professor will probably contradict me on this, but I've always kind of thought the song is about a person who's conflicted about who they really are, and they're looking for someone to kind of validate what they think is true at the moment, and you know, and, and to to validate that the way that they look at life. But I do, I prefer this one more than the one on America. What's your take on it, Ray? Well, so first of all, I don't, I never begrudge anybody's interpretation of art, because art is what is what it is to you so and good art is usually a lot of different things to a lot of different people so this song i know that i got a couple things off of a uh there's not like i said there's not a lot on the crows out there the crows bass you know boa did a great job with crows bass you know rest in peace it was originally titled night eyes and uh was recorded for tall and then played at a slower tempo which when i went back and looked at at, uh, steve's book it said that you know they were recording in the middle of the night and half the band was coked up and half the band was dead tired. So, and <laughs> unfortunately the half the band that was dead tired, you can really tell in these versions, it seems like they're, you know, trying to really just play as, as hard as they can. And they really need a good shot of espresso. To me, this song is, is, you know, basically saying we're not, we're not a bunch of loser phonies that are copying anybody else. This is what we're, this is what we're, this is who we are. And it's, you know, what you don't understand, this is a very old land. This is just good rock, and good blues-based rock. And um, come join us for our musical ride. Um, the song's intro is slightly different, and uh, it's a different drum pattern from the Amorica release. And Mark, he's, he's having a whole lot more fun on the wah-wah pedal in this version. Yeah. He's just going off. And Amorica starts off a little bit quicker and a little bit more bombastic, and the wah is a little buried. Amorica has this kind of trippier dissonance to it, especially from the can you tell me wrong from right section of the pre-chorus. By the way, on Amorica, who doesn't love Ed and his church organ interludes before the last pre-chorus? The Lost Crows version has a, has a muffled start, and the guitars are really high in the mix. They are busier, and they weave in and out a lot better with Ed during the lyrics. It's more straightforward rock on the pre-chorus. Steve's fills are a little different on this version. This one has more of like a, a Leslie speaker effect going on 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 Rich's guitar. It's but it's oscillating really slowly, and Mark puts in a ferocious solo here. And his playing on the outro chorus is amazing. The song ends with the tape just cutting off rather than hearing the song kind of drone out to its ending 
and the the scrape of fingers being lifted off the frets like the Amorica version. I like this one a lot, and I, I don't know if I like it better than the Amorica version. The Amorica version seems a little, maybe a little too polished for me. This is a little bit more raw, and I like that. See, now I would I would very much agree with you, Ray. The funny thing to me about the production throughout the tall sessions is the tracks do sound raw but yet it has this almost polished kind of production to it almost like the production's a little bit m- muted in a lot of cases and that's, mm-hmm. that's something I, I have a hard time getting by throughout the, re- the entire recording yeah I, I noticed that I, it's just there's i'm wondering if paul stacy intentionally put up mark and ed mm. in the mix because they're really pronounced in in a, in a lot of these songs I mean, that's definitely true. Uh, you, know, you can hear a lot of Mark's subtleties, which I think a lot of them are present on Amorica. They're just buried in the mix. Uh, if mm-hmm. you really listen closely on a good set of headphones, some of these things you can hear still in there, but they're much more upfront in the Tall Sessions mix, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I agree. But the uh, the next track on the record is one that I'm going to let David handle first because I know he doesn't like this song on Three Snakes. I, I'm interested in his take on this early, early Tall version, and that is Evil Eye. <laughs> I actually like this one a little bit more than the Is one that right? on three. Yeah, it's a little to me. It's a little more subdued. The um, but the verses to me seem incomplete. I think the song has potential from uh, a sonic standpoint, but to me the, the the lyrics ruin it. And the backing female vocals on this just sound very stock, and they lack like any emotion, um, which really distracts from the song. And I have on here the solo, if you can call it that, is one of the worst I've ever heard on a Crow's song. It is very flat and lacks any dynamics. I could appreciate that. To me, I do agree with the the unfinished element. This song never really sounded fully finished to me at all. Even on the Three Snakes version, it doesn't first of all it doesn't feel like it belongs there. And clearly it was written at a different time and, and in a different place. I do I do like the Three Snakes version. This version to me sounds very much like it's in a demo stage. And the, the lyrics are quite different. They're not fully fleshed out. And I agree with you too, David on the the quality of the backing vocals i find that that's something again throughout the the tall sessions that sticks out like a sore thumb to me they it's almost like they're the 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 backing vocals are too produced in a lot of cases and it doesn't fit in with that more raw quality that the music has otherwise i don't what do you what are you thinking on this one ray first off i know this is not the most beloved song in their discography yes but i've always kind of liked it because it's got that that christ haunted south southern element it's, it creeps into a lot of their songs, No Speak, No Slave, Thorn in My Pride. Those kind of come to mind, uh, among others. The uh, Jesus Can't Save You, though it's nice to think he tried. I, it's just always just appealed to me. Not so much the, the studio chatter opener, but this has got some Russian gibberish, which I hung around a bunch of Russian linguists, and I actually tried to Google Translate what they were saying. I couldn't get anything out of it. Um, <laughs> Immediately, the music scape isn't as dense as the Three Snakes version. Um, there is no, there's no backward guitar track. Johnny Colt's playing 
some fat bass in this. I like the My Fair Haired and Lonely Brother, My My Night Eye Dilated Sister. The scales that Mark is playing and Ed and company are speeding up on every fourth note and that turnaround back to the pre-chorus, that is awesome. This is proof of their growth as a band. The The addition of Ed and not just him, but the time on stage during the High is the Moon tour and uh, uh, what Steve said that they were listening to and dissecting bootlegs of Little Feet the Stones and Zeppelin and how they would stretch out their songs on stage and how they'd have triggers and passages to bring them back from the improvised tangents that they would play. This is proof of that, that they studied well right here. So I like this tune. I would, I would definitely tend to agree on that. This does it is the first example of, on this recording of many examples that shows how much the band again grew on tour. I mean, you know, the fam- most famous example being in between Shake Your Moneymaker and Southern Harmony. There was a you know a lot of growth that the band showed because they toured for so long, and I think that same kind of growth. But this is almost more of a a stylistic change of direction in terms of growth, and I kind of like that they're expanding their palette, which mm-hmm. allows them to be more open to different styles and different you know themes and and the way they put their their music across. I, I would wholeheartedly agree. Well, when did they when did they get Ed? Was it during Shake Your Money Maker, or was it during? Yeah, it uh, was. It was about halfway through Shake Your Money Maker, wasn't it, Ian? Okay, yeah, through the, through the, the tour. tour. Yeah. So, and Jeff Cease was still around, and then when they put Mark in, you know, Mark going on that tour and kind of fitting in with the slot with the band and getting that groove, they have that other intangible element where the you know the sum is greater than the than the individual parts. Yes. They uh, yeah they hit that kind of chemistry, and then with all of them kind of digging in and listening and hanging out. On the, on the tour bus and, you know, saying, hey, how did Zeppelin do that turnaround? Or what are the Stones doing here? And how did they how did they figure that out? And, you know, the Stones are usually, well, they can be. They can be a mess live. But a lot of times they're not, especially with, I think, the bootlegs that they were listening to. I would hope they were probably listening to a lot of the, the 72, 73 tour stuff. They were a hell of a tight band. And then you can kind of hear it on some of the, there's that one recording that they did at the Beacon from 95 where the band is just on fire and even steve mentions that in his in his book that that was one of the the shows that they they called one of the best ones and that that's just a devastatingly good band even more so than what you what you saw in shake your money maker and this is you know they came in with with that kind of oomph to do this to do this album that's it shows a lot of growth i would also say too that 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 tightness in the band that now existed because of Mark and Ed's presence really allowed them to, to spread out a bit more. I don't think mm-hmm. that they were all in sync enough with Jeff Cease to, to really start exploring different avenues, you know? Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't just put Jeff as like the scapegoat, but yeah, it was, I don't, I think he was holding them back musically, but I think that all of them kind of needed to know each other a little bit better. Yeah. So, and you, and you only get that by a shared experience. Exactly. So it's kind of like a band of brothers kind of thing. Now, the next tune that, that pops up on this is a uh, a definite classic in the Crows catalog that went through many iterations before its final Amorica version, uh, this being the closest to the Amorica version, in my opinion, and that's Cursed Diamond. So I can show this to you.
I mean, I've always loved this song. The lyrics to this are heartbreaking in, in the best way possible. And I, I, the only thing I feel on this is I feel on the Amorica version, the way that Rich's heavy guitar parts come in on that are a real good juxtaposition to the quieter parts. And I don't think that that comes across as, as aggressively uh, on the tall version. It's still a, an excellent version of the song. Honestly, to me, I don't hear enough differences in it like, arrangement-wise or parts-wise to really make me feel any you know, differently about it than I do about the Amorica version, other than the things I've just mentioned. I don't know. What do, what do you think, David? This should be called the I Need Self-Help song. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, this, this is, this is one of the more emotional ones in the Crows catalog. Uh, and to me, it's kind of an, almost like an honest review of how most people are with inner conflict. Um, you know, the subject has much inner conflict with right versus wrong, sane versus mental illness, the need for acceptance for his imperfections. To me, Ed's keys during the first verse are more pronounced than on the Amorica version. It gives almost like a gospel tinge to it. To me, the chorus has a much sl- slower solo from forward, and it's in the background. It's almost non-existent. You have to really listen. Always love the line where he goes, it's easy, baby, before the solo. And uh, to me, the solo on this one, the tone and the cadence of it is just kind of really lacking. It's good to see what Cursed Diamond came from, and I think that's one of the great things about this album is you see that, hey, these guys just don't show up in a studio and it sound the way they had it written initially. This isn't a bad take on it, but you're comparing it to the finished product on a Amorica, and if you do that, it's going to lose out every time. Yeah, there's, well, I agree with you, Ian. There's really not any significant difference between the Tall and the, the Amorica versions, and I think that the solo was more of a guide solo that he was using. He'll come up with something a little bit better, but this is where we're going to have the solo. It's going to be this many bars play something we'll you know we'll get there i always thought this song was uh, about self-loathing and craving he knows he's damaged goods and he will be and he's going to corrupt whoever he's with but it's going to be a great ride till it's not um, <laughs> the the slide is a little bit more muted on this version but the emotional punch and the thrust of the song is still there it's easy to see why this song was salvaged for amorica and uh, i just love how the song builds and builds until it stops and then it quietly ends in the last 40 seconds or so with Ed tickling the keys and the acoustic strumming and that slow picking of Mark. It's just, it's perfect for the song. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. It's funny, you mentioned it being more like a guide solo. So I, I wonder really how complete this Tulse album was. Just because they say they recorded the album, I don't know if everything was you know in its final versions, if they had recorded all the, you know, the proper solos and it was like, mixed and ready to go or if this was you know an unfinished product it's interesting that you that you bring that up well this was this was the time that that uh chris decided he wanted to leave atlanta Mm. and move across the country to la because he was the star now this is when even even going back to the only book i can have reference to is with with steve gorman when he said and messed with the chemistry of the band because they couldn't hang out as much Mm. Just socially, just, you know, whenever they couldn't decide, hey, let's just go jam. Let's get Chris and jam. You know, they'd have to schedule it. And this is kind of what uh, in that book under their thumb, they they talked about it in the Stones where the Stones became the Stones plus one when it was, you know, the Stones, the the four guys plus Jagger. He didn't he kind of left the band a little bit. Right. And this kind of seems along the same lines as this is when the Crows became the Crows plus one. Yeah. And kind of showed some fractures in there, and I know he was the he he demanded to be the producer of this. Yeah, 
yeah, that was a that was a bad choice. <laughs> well, it seems to me that this was the point where Chris tried to take you know the majority of the leadership role in the band mm-hmm. and really started trying to call more of the shots and have the band go along with him than have it instead be of more, it being uh, a collective exactly. Yeah. And and also you can tell that at, this is the point in time where where Chris was listening to Jellyfish a lot because a lot of elements in this music and the production kind of are in line with stuff I've heard on Jellyfish. Oh, we're going to get to some Jellyfish stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so the next song on uh, up in the rotation here is a song that I always liked. I know this is another one that, that David's not too keen on, and that's here. It's called London P25. <laughs> on America this is actually called P25 London I think they switch it around if I'm not mistaken but I always like this song this version of it is kind of cool to me because this is the first time I ever noticed and it, it caused me to go to the America version and listen really close where Mark mirrors that lyric if I don't say nothing he says it real low underneath you know if I don't say he like you know call and response between him and Chris I know they always did it live I never even noticed it was on the America version until I heard it on the tall version and went back and compared so I this one to me is another one that kind of the tempo's a little slowed down, but other than that, I don't I don't really pick up on a huge difference between this and the Amorica version. Uh, David, does this does this version improve on the song for you at all? I actually like this version. Do you? Mm-hmm. Um, so I know you guys know the answer to this because I messaged you yesterday, and uh, I'm not going to give away my source, but let's just say it is somebody that <clears throat> absolutely would know some of this stuff. Kind of always been a little bit of a question: what is P25 London. Mm-hmm. I've never I've never heard any on any crows boards anybody say what the title of the song means. No, I like I said I I always thought it was like you know I figured that Chris was a journal writer and that you know he was in London and it was page 25 or the 25th you know entry into his journal and he came up with this thought about what this song is about. Well, according or, to my according to my very well-placed source it was a tag on Rich's guitar case. See, now I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I like Ray's interpretation a lot better, even though it's not the truth. <laughs> it's much more artistic. So anyway, I, I, I mean, to me, that's that's kind of breaking news. I'd never heard that, and I uh, appreciate the person that told me that. But obviously, we learned, and we've heard from, I've heard from numerous people that absolutely would know, the line about empty bottle saviors is about Eddie Vedder, and he would mm-hmm. walk around these parties and appear drunk, but have an empty wine bottle just so he could avoid having to like talk to people. To me, the lyrics are much easier to understand 
on this version versus the America one. I love like the line, imagine how surprised all the kids would be is, you know, um, that's referencing Eddie Vedder's thing. Like, you know, you're a poser and you know, all these people really look up to you. Um, to me, the, 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 some of the verses though, it lacks the guitar stabbing notes in the background that you get on Amorica from, from Mark Ford. I do like the male backing vocals on this. And, um, I have, I have been told that someone close to the situation thought a lot of it had to do with Chris's relationship at that time with the media, with how they treated him and how he treated them. And that also that, uh, that he was, you know, a really smart person and had a lot of information inside of his head. And it would really surprise people, you know, if he really, you know, took all the words in his head and, and said them out loud and, and where some of that comes to be. But, um, yeah, this is, I, I definitely like this one better than the Amorica version to me on the Amorica version, the, the vocals and the music and everything, and it's a little faster and a little more music in the background is a little more pronounced. I kind of have a hard time understanding the lyrics as much on that one. And this one I do, like you said, it is a little bit slower, but uh, yeah, I kind of wish they would have gone with this take versus the one on Amorica. Hmm. That's interesting. What's your take on this one, Ray? Well, see, I, first of all, we're going to go with the title. Um, it's slightly different than Amorica like you pointed out, but it's not so much that you actually notice. And my automaticity always kind of refers to the song as the familiar Amorica title, in my mind, kind of similar to when you're reading and you see the word the misspelled, mm-hmm. <laughs> your, your brain just kind of unconsciously adjusts it. And you just right. keep going. It doesn't stop you. Uh, the song starts with that choppy riff and uh, with a harmonica accompaniment. I love, love the accent licks that Mark is ripping on this one. It sounds so much rawer than what you get on the Amorica version. And um, Ed is vamping on what sounds to me like a Wurlitzer. And I don't know if he played just, if he played, I know he had a Whirly, but I don't know if he, if he always was on a Whirly or if he used a, a Fender Rhodes. You play that and you're, you're going to get into my musical pants. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just, like I said, Mark's licks are a lot more dirtier and grittier on this song. I agree with you. Chris is very, he's a very intelligent person. Um, you can kind of see that in, in a lot of his lyrics. It comes across, but he he's also comes across as slightly bipolar. Um, <laughs> the song is about the bullshit image of grunge, which going back to, to uh, a conspiracy where, you know, they thought it was, he was kind of answering back the, the people thought that he was just a poser and that the band was not really real, that it was all kind of manufactured like the monkeys or something. He's got nothing but bile for, for grunge. Uh, he's a cobweb in the corner of the room, and there's a hornet's nest in his head, and he's furious about it. Um, if I don't say nothing, you say, you say now tell us what to do. So I tell you all, this is how I live. Someone else calls it the news, but that's yesterday's, yesterday's news. And Mark just rips a solo that I, I wish was higher in the mix. That's probably the only time I'll say this about this album. Interesting take on the state of rock music in 1994. And this is where I put in the question, did Paul Stacey intentionally highlight Mark and Ed because they're so prominent in this in this entire album? And I know that I, it seems to me like Stacey was kind of saying, get get Ed back because you guys have a really special chemistry that I don't think you realize how special it is. Or maybe they did. I agree with you that I like this one better, mostly because of what I can hear playing from Mark. Than, than what's on the Amorica version. 
It's interesting that what you point out about the lyrics. I think it's it's ultimately what why I like the Amorica version slightly better is I feel like the music is as angry as the lyrics are, and they kind of mm-hmm. pair a little bit together. But I mean, both versions to me are absolutely fantastic. This is uh, the probably the first very exciting point in the track order because next up is a track that does not appear on Amorica, didn't appear anywhere until Lost Crows came out. Anywhere officially, I should say. I mean, it was on bootlegs and things and unofficial versions at all for years. But it quickly became a fan favorite. And that is Dirty Hair Halo. Yeah, there was a big deal when this got played live. It was a big deal when it, you know, oh, yeah. when it, when it got broken out. Um, this is one of the songs that you know I had had a hard time getting my hands on when I was starting off in the collecting. You know, and I'd hear people talk about dirty, dirty-haired Halo and like Wyoming and me for some reason were the ones that I would see people talking about, and I was like, I don't know what the you know what they're referring to, but I love how the song starts off with this kind of really vibrant, feel-good tempo to it. Chris's singing on this is really good because he's singing in a little bit of a different register than he does uh, on other songs, at least up to that this point in his career. The thing that I don't like about it is those backing vocals. Um, t- to me, they kind of kill the, the mood of it. Lala told us in one of our interviews with her that there are elements of her in this song. Um, and to me, the, the, the song seems to be about um, a person that feels there needs to be two in the relationship, but one of them isn't always present. Mark Ford puts on a shred fest with the wide pop with the wide pedal and then followed by a straight ahead solo. This is a blistering Mark Ford solo. He adds a little bit of anger to it. If you ask me. Um, and at the end of the solo, Ed gets a little chance to shine on the organ, but it's a little low in the mix. But um, if the backing vocals were different on this, this would, it would be a much, much better track, but it has all the elements of, of cool crow stuff. You got Ed on there and you've got great Chris singing and you got Mark just absolutely wearing it out. See, now this one, to me, the stuff that Mark does on it is so signature to the song and so key to the song. It's it's almost like he needed a writing credit on this, which is very shocking to me that he never really did. I mean, those volume swells that he does you know, in the intro and, and throughout the song, that's that's key to the song. That's that's part of what you remember about the song. It's the hook in a lot of ways. And uh, this, I mean, you're definitely right, David. This is a Mark Ford show on this tune. I mean, I agree with everything you said about it. I, 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 I'm hard pressed to figure out why this never did appear in some other uh, version somewhere else, and not necessarily on Amorica, but just somewhere down the line. And uh, it's a real gift to have it on this uh, this tall collection. See, David said something that reminded me that the collecting, 
and and how there were certain songs that you had to search out. You had to go and find them. And that kind of reminds me of the Stones, now that the Stones are releasing all of them. But, like, the Stones version of, uh, what's that Dobie Gray song? Is that the song that Uncle Cracker did? Yeah. Yeah, 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 I, know what you, yeah I know what you're talking yeah. about. I can't you remember know, the, the name Stones, of it. The Stones did that one, and then they did, um, you know, the Cocksucker Blues that you had to have. You had to listen to that one, or Claudine, about Claudine mm-hmm. Loggett and... You know, now they've released all of them, but, you know, it was kind of the same thing that they have these songs out there that are finished, but you you have to kind of search for them or they were only on a B-side, you know, in Japan or God knows where. It just wasn't as easy to find. I just love the hunt of that. And then you find it and then it's a great song. And this is one of them. So uh, and I love love the, the visual you get from just the song title. It fits the Chris Chris Robinson so well. Um, at least the Chris Robinson of this time period. Uh, he's no longer the cleaned up, hyper smart ass kid that's the front man who you knew during Shake Your Money Maker or High as the Moon, who changed into stage clothes. He's now the dude that just kind of walks in right off the street and straight onto the stage. It's a song about an, an uncom- uncomplicated chick with a dirty hairy halo, the one that's caught Chris's eye and his heart for that moment. The start and that beat with Rich noodling over Johnny's bass line. And Ed playing the carousel-style organ with Mark doing those volume swells in his slide playing before the main riff kicks off is just stunning. The song has got that that infectious hook to it. The very, they're very subtle and melodic ones that hours later you find yourself singing passages of, you know, it just goes in your head. You think, dirty hair, halo, there you go. Mostly for me, it's about the volume swells and the verse lines. David and I uh, mentioned, you know, a couple of times about the backing vocals. How do you do? You feel that the backing vocals are appropriate, or do they interfere at all for you? No, they it it kind of it hooks you in. That's that's kind of where the hook is. It's it's when he says the dirty hair halo, and then you hear the there you go behind him, and it it just it fits really well. It's it's a vocal style that I have not heard since with them. It's it's odd that they abandoned that. You know, you'd think they would give it a go in some other kind of capacity, but. Um, I, I yeah it, it this is the one of the definite highlights of the tall sessions for me for sure the only other song I was as excited to hear you know at the time was exit when I got to hear exit that was another same thrilling like oh I've heard this title for so long and now I'm finally getting to hear this song and dirty mm-hmm. hair halo and exit were on the same same level for me now next in the track order we do go back to a song that would later appear on Amorica and that is high head blues. <laughs> I think the the way they handle percussion on the Toll sessions and the way it sounds and is produced really suits this version of the song. It's a highly percussive song to begin with, very Latin flavor to it. Obviously, the Amorica version was a single, had a video on MTV and all that. But uh, I really think there's something special about this version. David, what do you think? Uh, I, I like the Amorica version better, but there's some things definitely to like on this one. Uh, kind of the song about maybe the... Uh, the life on the road and uh, the reality of life on the road versus the 
how it's glamorized when um we're uh young and oh it'd be great to be on the road 300 days a year you know in a bus <laughs> um but uh or it could be about you know how one day you're good one day you go off the rails but uh, the course to me feels unfinished there's something weird about the way steve symbol is mic'd during the course it just it seems to like ring on a little bit too long the outro to me though you know obviously there's nothing like the one on the Amorca version, but I, I, I still think this is a fun one to listen to. And it's a great, it's another great example of how they go into the studio with one version and how the version that makes the album is different. Hi Head Blues is one of my favorite Black Rose songs. I, I love it. I think it's so much fun live. And this is, you know, on Amorca is when they were really getting into the extra percussion. And uh, that that's definitely stands out on this track. Now, Ray, I'm very interested to hear your take on this one. I want to see which way you'll go with this. What do you think? <laughs> According to Steve Gorman, this was the first total Chris Robinson composition that Rich Robinson had to despise. My question after I hear this song, and I've always liked it, but when I listen really closely to the lyrics, my first question is, is Chris, Chris really bipolar or is he just maladjusted? Because <laughs> the lyrics of the song really make me wonder. Starts off with that shaker and Chris asking, are we ready? And then he vocalizes the riff and claps the guitar, then the drums, the keys and the bass. And then Mark slashes in as they built to that verse riff. The A charmed life it is. At least they tell you so. I got a good idea. It ain't like they say it so. And if it is, then let me go. Everything that you wanted isn't exactly everything that it was cracked up to be that you thought it was going to be. I get that. That's life. I like the instrumental break. It's jazzy and it's got that kind of bossa nova feel. And the second time it falls into that chicken picking solo as the band vamps behind him. The song has, has such a loose feel to it, like everyone is playing whatever they want to to fill in the cracks, and it just sort of works. It's really, it's got that kind of really loose element to it. I uh, I really appreciate your interpretation of, of all the lyrics so far. I feel like here, and then subsequently on Amorica, is when Chris's lyrics started getting much, much more personal. Whereas before his his lyrics were important, but they were much more worldly, if that's a if that's a valid way to describe it. But this is he really takes on a lot more personal themes. He wasn't he didn't want to show so too much of himself. I well, think you're, you're well, right. You know, at this point, he started dating Lala. Eventually, they would go on and get married. You know, I, I mean, I don't know anything about Chris's personal life whatsoever, but I would imagine that was probably his first real serious relationship post being famous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and she came from rock royalty and, you know, and she was part of that Hollywood scene back in the late eighties, early nineties. And I just think he probably had a lot of inspiration to, to draw from on a lot of things. And I mean, at this point you've had an album that sold 5 million copies and then an album that debuted at number one, you've played with the stones, you know, you've played with Robert Plant, you've played with ZZ Top, Aerosmith, all these heavy hitters. And now you're out on your own and it's, it's on you to bring mm-hmm. the people in, you know, you're no longer just opening forms. I just feel like there was probably a lot going on in his life that kind of apexed after uh, Southern Harmony. The next track up in the, uh, in the running order here is a, uh, is one of those, again, fan favorites, a song that I have always loved, loved hearing it live. I sought it out on a compilation that it came out on. Cause it actually was released officially on a horde tour compilation and that's how i first got my hands on it but and that's a track called feathers (laughs) 
Feathers is such a beautiful song and such a testament to this band's ability to to play like to play for a a predominantly heavier rock band to come out and do something this subdued so successfully is is absolutely wonderful and and just everything about this song Mark's playing on this is fantastic Ed's little flourishes and additions to it just fantastic across the board I I, I can't I'm hard pressed to come up with a more poignant song in the Black Crows catalog it really stands amongst their best it's actually I remember reading an article pre Amorica in Rolling Stone that mentions Feathers like as being on the album and then you know when it comes out it's not on the album and it was always very surprising to me and I'm not quite sure why it never made it but I think this is a great song David what do you think of this one one of the holy grails of the unreleased music <clears throat> yes. you know it exit a title song tied up and swallow dirty haired halo just one of the holy grails and to me, the opening is as simple and ineffective of an opening few bars of any music you will ever hear. It sets the tone within seconds. I think every member of the band shines on this song. This is, this is top shelf Chris lyrics, top shelf vocals from him. Mark's just eerie tone on this just really shines through. Ed is just laying these beautiful little flourishes. Johnny's bass playing. And then the drumming, even though it sounds simple that Steve's doing, is as, to me as much a part of this song as anything else. The whole band shines on it. Some of Chris's best lyrics, I, I would like to, uh, I'll give you my interpretation of it. I'd like to see what the professor's is. I've always thought this is a little bit about a couple that's in the throes of addiction. And the subject wants both of them to get clean, but he realizes the odds are that only one will get out at best. Uh, he's reminiscing about the days when life was better. And he is the, the however, is the eternal optimist. That's kind of my take on it. And the outro just sets this ominous tone at the end to make me think things didn't work out. Ray, do you agree or disagree? Well, I didn't bring in the addiction, but yeah, I got it that it was, it was a remorseful song about a love gone bad. And and they're kind of hoping to rekindle the good times again. But addiction fits into that one and how drugs can kind of mess with it. I, I had everything up there but the addiction. So this song always seemed to me like it came out of or was inspired by the sweet pickle salad stuff. Yes. Um, the song would fit perfectly on that boot. Incidentally, it's I've been listening to sweet pickle salad for the last few days because of this song. I love that thing. Um, it's got that smoldering guitar and that hypnotic organ over it. The song takes on an ethereal quality, and they do it so damn well. Um, it's it's that uh, it's got that push comes to shove vibe from Van Halen at the beginning a little bit. I have no idea why this wasn't included on Amorica. It is a fantastic atmospheric song. Again, just like you two, this is one of the songs I had to search for because I'd heard so much about it. The part that I love the most on it is not just the lyrics and his playing, but it's how the song briefly stops. And it takes on that darker melancholy jam for the last minute. It so reminds me of Pink Floyd Animals in there. Uh, yes. Fading and ending with just that drum beat. It just sets such a good tone. I mean, I don't know anybody that's heard this song that doesn't love the Crows that doesn't love this song. It's it's funny that you say that. The second that you said that, it connected in my head. There's a part in Feathers that sounds exactly like the beginning of Sheep on yes. Animals. Yes. yes. That's amazing that you said that, and it's very much the same vibe. That's great, man. 
that's a fantastic album too. That's a whole other conversation, but uh, I've been this, waiting for that remaster to come out. <laughs> but definitely a Holy Grail tune, as far as you know, uh, diehard fans go. To me, I, I don't see a whole lot of difference between this version and the one that was released as a B side or whatever you want to call it, other than the way that Ed's keys sound. There's a little bit different sound between that version and this one. But other I than think that, that's just the mix. I think yeah. that's just Paul Stacey's mix because I, I was listening. I set this up as, as, you know, listening to other versions of the songs. I would listen to this one and then the next one because sometimes the differences are really subtle. And I had to do that a lot with, like, the the Led Zeppelin companion discs mm. where where I really felt ripped off by Led Zeppelin 4 until I listened to them that same way where I would listen to rock and roll. And then I would listen, you know, that was probably the most easy difference to find. But, you know, I was really hoping to get the other solo in, in uh, Stairway to Heaven. But Jimmy kind of held on to that one. Yeah, that was the only way I could I could really hear the differences on some of these songs because they some of them are so familiar to me that my head goes right to the the original version. And next up, uh, you know, I've said this time and time again throughout this episode, but uh, you know, definite fan favorite here, a quieter tune, and that is nonfiction. <laughs> one of your average good old paranoia songs this contains one of my favorite chris lyrics the clouds conspire above my head i overheard them say i wish he was dead today the sunset burned my eyes and in the next room i hear someone cry so i mean he's got people out to get him and he's got people upset that he lived through the night you know and made it to the next day he's just got all all these people (laughs) against him um I think, uh, you know, this one is a little more unfinished versus the one on a morgue. It doesn't have much of an outro, but uh, I have no problems with this one. I like it. Yeah, I I, I think this song is, uh, is fantastic in both versions. This one, I think, if I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Ed has a little bit more of a pronounced contribution to this version, if I'm not mistaken. But I just overall love this song. Lyrically, this is one of Chris's shining moments. Uh, before and since you know it's just it's a top five lyrical song for me from chris robinson ray what's your interpretation of this one i got a lot of information off of crow's face which i'm not even going to read um <laughs> it starts off very raw from the amorica version it's um 
It's exactly what it sounds like in an early version of a very familiar song to fans. You can see why they salvaged this song. It's got the strumming count in with Mark making his guitar weep for licks. Mm. It does not have the soft play of Ed during the intro here. And Mark's solo is very different. He's got the treble turned way up for a very clean tone. And he's playing with the volume swells again. And the ending is a little different, too. Chris sings in the next room, I hear someone cry, and the song stops with some maraca shaking. And the Amorica version is just drawn out a little further and it has no maracas at all. I always loved this song just for the emotional appeal of this one. I, the Paranoia one, when he first said this is a song about paranoia, when I saw him in concert, I was kind of like, it is? <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that. So I just liked the vibe of the song more than anything and that's I've, I've always I've always I think I think every time that I've seen them they played this even more so than high head blues you know I've only seen them like 10 times I'm not one of those those guys that can you know count up to 50 or 60 but no I love this song I love this version of this song end of part one intermission end of intermission Part two. The next song up on the album, uh, this is a personal favorite of mine. I actually talked the Amorican's tribute band into performing this one time. I was very pleased about that, but I think that raised all kinds of questions for them about me because they didn't know me too well at the time. Based on the subject matter of the song, that is Tied Up and Swallowed. Tied Up and Swallowed was released as a B-side for Amorica, and I think it's one of their most fantastic tunes in terms of the the soul and the riff. And just I just I really love this particular version because it's a little longer than the one that was released. If you listen to some other bootleg versions of this too, the end does tend to go on for quite a bit, and they kind of take it into a little bit more of a jam, which is nice. But I understand why that couldn't you know be a part of an album. You tend to truncate things a little bit album-wise. But, uh, David, what do you think of this song? Uh, it's one of my favorite Black Crow songs. You get Rich and Mark shining on this. This is another example of Rich taking something that's kind of a little oddball and simple and making it into something cool-sounding like he does with the volume pedal on the intro of this. You know, kind of like he does with the toggle switch or whatever on uh, Lickin'. But this is one of those ones that's I don't know anybody that doesn't like it. It has one of the heaviest and most raucous openings of any Crow song that we know of. It's as close to sleaze rock, I think, as they'll get. This one's a little more straightforward. There's not a lot of interpretation you need for the lyrics on this. And it's about the groupy life and the downside of that lifestyle. But lots of extra percussion that adds to me to the franticness of the track. Uh, Rich is just genius on it. You gotta put this. You gotta find a way to get this on a Morka, and I would take off downtown money waster and slot this in. And man, you're you're getting close to a perfect album at that point. 
Well, I, I wouldn't take off downtown money waster. I would just slap this on the end with with Chevrolet, and that mm. would work for me. They probably had more than enough room on it. They just don't know if they had the technology to do it back then. But I'm going to defend downtown money waster <laughs> all I can. <laughs> so, I'm with um, you. Don't worry. Well, I know that this song evolved from a live-only original song called You're Such a Pity, which they reworked, and, and they just saved the, the line. Uh, everybody says you're such a pity. When it's one of the first songs they recorded for Tall, and it was recorded a couple of times. It's a fun little song about a knockout slut who's into bondage, is what I got out of it. Um, <laughs> well, that sums it up. <laughs> yeah, it's it really kind of it's right up there with with the music is so good and it the song just takes you that you know you don't really notice what the song's about till you really listen to the lyrics, kind of like Brown Sugar, where you're kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, my mother's gonna hear this. <laughs> It's a clear example of how tight this band was to pull this off, because this—that's not an easy thing to do. It'd be e- really easy for like any one of them to get lost and go, "Wait, what?" So, so, and have it just all fall apart. But this is this is a great tune, and I don't know why this one wasn't released before. You know, yeah. th- this actually wouldn't be a bad lead single off of Morka. That's a hot take, David, but yeah. I, I I would be inclined to agree with you to be honest. Yeah. Oh, David, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? You that's know? exactly right. <laughs> now next up in the track order is a signature Black Crow song and that is Wiser Time. My problem with this version is I really need Wiser Time paired with Ballad and Urgency at all times. It's just a personal thing for me. The two songs go together like Heartbreaker, Live and Love and Made. But that, you know, that being said, this really, to me, is more of a, a blueprint version of Wiser Time because it feels a little too, I guess, sterile, for lack of a better term, just a little too clean for me, whereas the you know, future released version has a lot, a lot more space to breathe to me and feels a little bit more 
cohesive as it should be because this really is a song. This song to me was always about being on the road and life on the road and the trials and tribulations. That, and it really, the released version on Amorica to me conveys that emotional feeling much better than this tall version does. I don't know. What do you take out of this one, David? You know, Ian, since they didn't pair this one with Ballad and Urgency on this album, that'd be kind of low down, wouldn't it? Oh, David, you just, I saw you <laughs> smiling. You couldn't wait to sit that pun out into the universe. <laughs> um, I agree with you on this. I feel like this was kind of like the basic recipe. Then we had to start adding the other ingredients on this. It starts out with a much cleaner tone. Uh, the steel guitar, though, is a little more prominent in the mix versus the Amorica version. Rich's vocals, if they're there at all, are really low in the mix when they're harmonizing on um, backing vocals during the uh, vocals. Um, this one isn't nearly as bright. Gorman's cowbell is even a little bit lower in the mix. Um, the guitars are very thin sounding. The first part of the solo is very muddled. You know, th- this is like a, a, it's like a, I'm like a broken record. It's great to see how the version of Amorica came to be from this one. This isn't terrible, but you're talking about one of the top two or three songs that the Crows have ever recorded. It's always blown my mind that some country artist hasn't picked this up to cover. Mm. I feel like you could convert this to a radio friendly country song fairly easily you know we've talked on here and and ian and i you and i are complete agreement on this a lot of people are the three quintessential crow songs my morning song thorn in my pride and wiser time that's a great representation of them there's a reason why that song is so beloved you know it gets played i've never seen a show played that i've been to that wasn't played and it's not like one of those things oh they're playing wiser time again i'm gonna go to the bathroom no it's always good that's to me, that's the signature of a great song. If it's a band you can see 20 or 25 times and there's a song you want to hear every time, like if you give me this in my morning song at every show I go to, I'm going to have a hard time complaining about anything else that I get. Um, this is peak, peak Black Crows on the Amorica version. This is was the building block from it. It's really cool get, to get to hear it. There's no tinkering or messing with or changing the original version. I would agree. It's just, Amen. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those songs that, yeah, you're absolutely right. It'll always be welcome and it'll always be perfect. And that even includes, folks, those versions with Adam McDougall that most of you don't like. I still enjoyed the song then, personally. But, uh, but Ray, what's your take on this tune? This song is probably the most easily identifiable song for me with the Crows because I was such a road dog for so many years. So being in the Air Force, I was constantly on the road. And then being an umpire, I was on the road for, what, 340 days one year. And that was just nuts. And uh, Man, I'd, li- I'd, is, like, I'd like to see your Marriott points. <laughs> yeah, I got quite a few of them. And I got, I got some air miles like you wouldn't believe. Um, <laughs> you know, everybody learns how to do that. But, yeah, it was just uh, – this, and Hotel Illness was another one I can identify with because I'd walk into the hotel room and I'd just go, again. And then my wife would always get mad because I would come home and, and act like I still lived in the hotel room. And uh, <laughs> she didn't particularly like that. Does that this mean you one, were washing your underwear in the sink? Is that what <laughs> no, no, no. We used to wash our uniforms. We used to wash because the uniforms were all dry fit. Ah. So, you know, and they'd give you three shirts and you're there for two and a half weeks and right. three shirts. You know, thank God for, for Febreze. Um, <laughs> I used to buy Febreze by the gallon and just spray that thing constantly. Or people would wash the, their shirt in the sink. And then, you know, you could always tell where the umpires were because every balcony had all their shirts out, you know. 
It's just it's just the way the open was the worst because the open you were there for three and a half weeks Ooh. and you got four uniforms and some of them could get up and walk by the time you were done with the first <laughs> week. The next track up is kind of a you know a quickie, just a little instrumental piece, and that is Sunday Night Buttermilk Waltz. <laughs> I've always liked this because I think it really showcases the interplay between Mark Ford and Rich Robinson very well. And it is acoustic. I love when those two guys play acoustic, even though they're primarily known for knocking out, you know, these stellar riffs and, and electric solos. They really do something special on acoustics, too. I know. What do you think of this one, David? I think it's a just a beautiful piece of music. I figured they I got a good idea. They were probably just sitting around the studio and one of them played one of these licks and then the other one hopped in. I always thought this would be good to appear is like a hidden track at the end of the album but i mean i don't really have much more to say that it's a beautiful piece of music what do you think ray i knew of this song from freak and roll because they mm. played it there um he goes mark and i are gonna do this thing we've been doing yeah yeah and it, it uh it's very similar to what zeppelin would do kind of showcasing their acoustic side in fact this song kind of reminds me of brown wire from physical graffiti it's just a really good piece of music doesn't have the yeehaw at the beginning, and it, it only has, if I can tell at all, it only has really subtle differences from the one that was previously released. And actually, this version is cleaner and better executed than the shown up version. There's a mistake that one of them makes in a, in the riff that's on the shown up version, where Mark is playing some weird sweeps while while Rich is playing the 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 main medley. There's a or melody. There's a there's a little finger picking error, but you have to really listen to it. To, to pick it out but i like this tune and i think it's just a kind of a good little breather that says hey we, we can do some other things it's interesting you mentioned the freaking roll version because that's actually my favorite version of it it's slightly different than these other two versions and i really think the interplay between mark and rich on that is like peak so mm-hmm. but uh, yeah i mean it's just a it's just a fun little nice piece of music really an interlude leading up to a song that you know is uh, now become synonymous with Ed Harsh, and that is "Descending."
I'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who doesn't appreciate Descending on many, many levels. It's an excellent closer to Amorica. It's just a very emotionally powerful song. It's a powerhouse for Ed himself. They all really interplay really nicely on it. The the thing I will say is that the Amorica version, to me, Ed's piano is much more bombastic on that, has much more of a drive to it than, than I find on this version of it. But other than that, I mean, there's just no way I could not appreciate any version of this song, really. What do you think, David? To me, there's no way for me to be objective about comparing anything to the Amorica version. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's a, the Amorica version is a perfect piece of music. It's one, you know, I caught some flack on a Magpie board one time. I just don't think anybody should ever try to play it. I thought Matt Slocum did a marvelous job covering it. But this is just one of those things that I feel like we just need to leave it leave it alone. Because nobody's going nobody's gonna to play it the way Ed did. Um, the beginning is pretty much identical to the Amorica version for the most part, but the slide is a little bit higher in the mix with the acoustic guitar almost non-existent. I do like on this, though, that during the verses, Ed's keys really shine more. It almost has like a kind of a gospel feel to it. Uh, the chorus to me is is completely different. It's The female backing vocals are very annoying. The, <laughs> and I don't want anything to take away from Ed's playing. Ed's outro is a little less dramatic than the release one, uh, but it's still extremely tasteful. But to me, there's no comparing any other versions to the one on Amorica. That's Hot Takes Hudson here. Oh, you are always Hot Take Hudson, and I appreciate <laughs> that about you immensely. <laughs> now, what do you say, Ray? Well, first off, this song is devastatingly good, and it's an instant favorite from Amorica. All albums should end with a song this good, but few do. This is the song as you listen to it. You this is the song you listen to as you smoke a cigarette after some great sex. Um, <laughs> it seems like a rough mix of the Amorica track. It's not the final take, but they're laying the framework down. It doesn't have the same falling into the main riff piano as Amorica. Johnny is really, really forward in this mix, and he's playing his ass off. He's kind of muddy on the Amorica track, and he's playing really clean here. Mark's slide licks are high in the mix, too. There's no Leslie Speaker warble effect in this version during the choruses, during the curses and clues part, but it has the background vocals of a, a curse, a clue is the same to me, regardless of your sympathy, reminding me to find beauty which they say sympathy really weird, and it's kind of hard to figure out that's what they're saying unless you have a lyric sheet in front of you. There's no acoustic guitar accents. And uh, is that a French horn? All I can hear on that part is is uh, Steve Gorman's voice from his audio book, Who Are We, The Beatles? <laughs> um, it's descending. It's just such a good song. I'll listen to it in any version that they have. If they want to play it on a cheese whistle, I'll listen. <laughs> so... I mean, I definitely agree with you. And the French horn, I, I know Steve took great exception to that in his book. It never that part never really bothered me. It is that backing vocals with the the lyrics that ultimately don't appear in the later version. I don't. That's the one element of this version of Descending on Tall that I just I don't care for. But other than that, I you know I think everything everything's okay. It's just that the Descending version is the powerhouse of the two. Now. Up next is a song that is drastically different from its Amorica counterpart, and that is a song here called Low Down. Yeah. 
Now, Low Down would become Ballad and Urgency on Amorica. And really, because of my affection for Ballad and Urgency and the way it pairs with Wiser Time, I don't, nothing about Low Down resonates with me, touches me in any way. It's kind of like a, almost like a, a demo. And I really don't, it's always, when I listen to this version of Tall, it's always one I just, I do tend to kind of pass by, unfortunately. Uh, David, what do you think of this one? I mean, you pretty much just summed up what I think as well um it just doesn't go anywhere and uh, obviously they reworked it and turned it into a classic yeah and i'm surprised that i believe it was on the 2013 tour but they broke it out live a few times Mm -hmm. and i was very surprised by that because it's so embryonic and ballad urgency has become so iconic it's weird that they would play this alternate pre-version of it you know live but that's the crows for you but what do you think of this one ray well so what you two both said is a classic example of called musical imprinting, which is what bands will, will, there was this, I can't remember what artist said it. He was on, I was on some podcast and he talked about how when they have, they know they have a good song and they're, they're doing the pre-production and just recording rough tracks. They don't want to listen to the rough tracks too much because they'll, they'll get it imprinted on them and they can't change from it. And what you're doing is reversing it is is what happened to you to to everybody with ballad is so good and it's so fully fleshed out that when you hear this version, which has different lyrics, but the strong the song structure still has very similar framework. But you're you were so used to the other one that we can just see how this one's lacking. I don't I don't particularly hate this song. I think it's because I came to the crows late. I'd be remiss to say that, not to say, you know, God bless whoever spliced this together with, with Ballad, not long after the Crows version, the Lost Crows version was released. You know, God bless them, because I really like how they did it. But they had a really good structure here. They knew they had something special. And it shows with this. I think that's why they included it in, in this this release. Yeah, i definitely glad that it's here. And with this one, much more so than some of the others, but all of them, even in in these stages, it allows you, and David's mentioned this a few times already, but allows you to appreciate what came after it. And I think that's, I think that's very important to their music. It makes you appreciate the proper release versions that much more. So our next tune coming up is a tune I know David has a little informational tidbit on, and I know it's a particular favorite of his, and that's Tornado. Sit down by the window and watch the tornado. Wait for the sheriff to bring some dirty water by. Help yourself out to some of my disaster. It's moving faster than the last time I was on speed. Don't you know what I mean? Cause it's ways and means and your ways are mean by definition. I could fill this page up with this boy's ambition. David, I'm going to let you handle this one. I just absolutely love this one. This is low key one of my favorite Black Crow songs. Um, and I was so lucky I got to see him play it on that. Um, 2010 tour when they did like the acoustic it was really cool because when i saw them 
I had never gotten a lot of the really, really deep cuts. Now I've gone, I'd gone to some shows that had some like obscure covers and some great jams, but I'd never gotten like deep, deep, deep cuts. And I saw them back to back in Atlanta, uh, back to back nights. And between those two shows, I pretty much got everything I wanted. You know, I got exit and, and, uh, got like tornado. I got no expectations, you know, when they started covering the stone song, but this one was written by Chris on acoustic guitar. And he and Mark just, I think went into the studio and, and recorded it. It starts off with kind of like, you know, sit down and watch the tornado. And you think it's just going to be like some type of like cliched, almost country song. But then the lyrics <laughs> take kind of a sharp turn. I think it's about a person that was head over heels in love with somebody only to get in love, fall in love with them and realize they were just a disaster and don't want any part of them anymore and just want to be left alone, you know, and then, but it has a campfire feel to it. I, I could see this getting played. You're sitting around a campfire and, you know, everybody's had about a six pack in them and two guys get out acoustic guitars and they play this. I really wish they'd have found a way to work this way into an album. Maybe not necessarily a more, I think you could have made a case. I know it's all new material, but I think you could have made a case for putting this on the back end of before the frost. But I just love it. I think it's a, I think it's a great song, and it's a simple song, one of the simplest songs they've ever recorded. But to me, it just has a, it has a lot of feel to it, and I just really enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, lyrically, it is a great tune, and I don't I don't dislike the song in any way. It's just another one of those songs. Fortunately, like the the tail end of this tall release are just you know a, a couple of songs that never really fully resonated with me. And I'm going to tell you something that is very rare for me to say, but I think that the version that the CRB does of this is, is quite nice. And I like what they did with it. It's a great and, way they do it. Yeah. Ray, what's your take on this one? It's a, it's a quick little ditty that, uh, every time I hear it, I almost think that Chris is almost freestyling these lyrics. It has that sort of loose feel to it. It's just Chris and Mark. And thematically, when you listen to the lyrics, it kind of reminds me of the stone song, the worst. Mm where it's it's basically the same thing of hey this is fun you know i'm a disaster and and um please just stay away it takes that turn and you the first time i heard it i was like wow this is wow <laughs> okay <laughs> i like it i I'm, I'm right there with you i never saw him play this live and then when i saw on crow's base it said they never played it live and then i have a live version on my itunes somehow so from one of those those shows that was supposed supposed to be their last shows at the Fillmore, 2010, I think, right? Yeah. Right. So the next track here is a song that would see release as a bonus track on the show enough version of Amorica, and that is a song called Song of the Flesh. So now you have Now, I don't know about you boys, but uh, this song, I like lyrically. There's just something about it that the song never felt fully formed to me. Always seemed a little bit incomplete. But I did always like the lyric, uh, I could kiss your promiscuous mind. That's such a great Chris lyric and belongs in his, uh, you know, his, the book of his classic lyrics, so to speak. But uh, David, what do you think of this one? 
Song of the Flesh. Ian, I kind of agree with you. I do love the way he says, I could kiss your promiscuous mind and, and the music behind it. But to me, the music on this seems very disjointed. This is one, like, I just, I don't really like it. I think it's uh, probably got to do with uh, a frisky woman, uh, if I had to, if I had to guess, which, uh, you know. You, <laughs> frisky. <laughs> yeah, take that from the, from the title. But, um yeah, I I don't really have much more to say on that. I do like that part. I could kiss your promiscuous mind, but other than that, this is kind of a throw a throwaway for me. Ray, it's, it's got that kind of sludginess to it. Mm. It doesn't all work. The title always struck me as a twist of the twenty second book from the Old Testament, uh, the Song of Songs, which is you know a passionate yet gentle song of love between a husband and a wife, symbolizing God's relationship with us kind of hard to believe that they actually have a harder version of this song. I have I Could Kiss Your Promiscuous Mind Down is a highlight for the lyric again. it's I have, Right behind it, I have What a Chris Robinson Phrase. The slowdown and the harmonica part, I like that part, but when it gets heavier, I don't, it, it just, it's too sluggish for me. Mark Solo, I talk about him a lot. He finds the right style and tone for each solo, doesn't he? His phrasing is always perfect. The song itself is kind of like you hear it and it's a forget it song. It just, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. So I, mean, I agree with you guys on that. So that leads us to the final song on this tall release. And another one of those songs that quickly became a Holy Grail song for the diehard Black Crows fans. And I think it's a fantastic song. And that is Thunderstorm 654. <laughs> song lyrically is so fantastic and i love the way chris sings on the outro of this about you know your sad prose and the way he the, the high register he goes into on that and it's just so i don't know it's 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 very perfect and a song that again i'm surprised never saw an official release but david what's your take on this it's another campfire tune. yeah you sit around the campfire and, and you're playing it i've always enjoyed it um, like you said, a lot of people are really high on it. I like it. I don't like it as much as Tornado. Um, I am surprised this doesn't didn't make a release somewhere. I think you could have put it on Warpaint. It would have it would have fit on Warpaint as I think Tornado would. It, it's 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 a it's a good song, but I've never. Does anybody know exactly what the song is about? I have no idea. What, I, he's Chris is just going for vibes on a lot of this, but I, I have my own interpretation of what it would be about. It has to do with being from the South. It's a it's a perfect song for that kind of late winter thunderstorm to roll in across the southern states. Because, as you know, the, the weather here fluctuates so much, especially during that time, where you, you can have one day where it's 100, and then the next day it's freezing, and then 
you know, a day after that, you're having a flood in the morning and then you're a, at a drought by the afternoon. So it's just, it's living in the South. For me, this song is a complete earworm. And it's not just the, the country tinged chorus of the scissors and strings, soon it will be spring, but the verses too with the violin and the, or is that a cello? It just doesn't seem to be over the top on this song. It has that, that same vibe as the spider and the sugar bowl blues to me. Yes. Um, not not overly complicated, but but this band, or should I say this version of the band, pulls it off with such a plop that it, it just kind of takes it all in stride. And then my highlight lyric is that a sad prose, a sad prose indeed. It's funny because I always notice on a digital clock when it's 6.54 p.m. Yes. And that's usually the first thing that I'm thinking of. I, for whatever reason, I'll be I'll be making dinner and I look and I'm like, oh, it's 6:54, thunderstorm. So, so it just it just gets hooked into my head. So I bet you a lot of Crows fans do that. To be honest with you, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, I, this is a song where I really came to appreciate Rich's use of open tunings. I think this is when I was still playing guitar pretty regularly. The first open tuning song I I tried to attempt i like the fact that the the timing of the song is not necessarily standard it's kind of a little left of center which makes it unique too and uh this is the one case also where i really think that the the backing vocals are successful and add to the song rather than detract from it so that's toll in a nutshell boys um any final thoughts david i think it's really cool that we have these songs to hear like this and it was i think the way it was presented was great uh paired with band you uh, you go between band and this, and you can put out a stellar album of music. The thing I enjoyed the most about it is the songs that did wind up on albums. Hearing them, how they st- originally started out, mm. and and you know, obviously, it's got some standout tracks on here: uh, "Tornado," "Feathers," "Tied Up and Swallowed," "Dirty Haired Halo." All of those are just absolutely uh, gems, but. Yeah, this was huge when it came out, man. I remember how excited I was that I got the Lost Crows and, and just really, because you had cl- cleaner versions than what I had on cassette tapes or CDRs of the other stuff. But yeah, this is, this was one of the cooler things they've done in, in releasing this the way they did, especially they released it around the time Mark's getting back in the band and they're going to crank out a lot of this stuff, especially a lot of the stuff on band was mm-hmm. about to get played. So um, yeah, I think it's one of the more fan-friendly things they've done as a band. Well, I was struck by, as I haven't heard the whole thing, I mean, I, I, it comes up on shuffle, but I haven't heard the whole thing in one sit-down for a long time, is how much is on there, and mm-hmm. what a what a breadth of styles that they have. And it goes to what, what you just said about Thunderstorm, about how they're really experimenting with different tempos and different song structures, and they're not really following, you know, the verse-chorus, verse-chorus, verse-chorus kind of pattern. They're doing whatever they want, and it's interesting. This this was a fantastic band. So <laughs> there's nothing else to say about that. This was a very fantastic. This is very unique, and uh, how they were able to pull this off. I do, and I remember when this came out. This was just I actually gravitated more towards Tall than I did to to the band stuff at first. You know, I, I really like the I like the first of all I like the title and I like where they got it from because I'm a jazz fan and I actually knew that and that mm-hmm. was kind of my dirty little secret. But and you know Chris. <laughs> Chris had to tell it to the world. <laughs> I just, I, this is, I, I really appreciate that they, fact that they put this out and that it was a, a fan friendly thing that they did from a band that's never really been all that fan friendly. So. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. 
Ray, we definitely appreciate you joining us for this episode. Thank you so oh. much for coming on with us. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciated it. Like I said, I've been a, I've been listening to you guys since the beginning. Well, we will certainly have you back anytime. And uh, if you've been listening, you know the deal. Our guest gets to pick the playout song. So what are you going to go with? I didn't even think about that. You know what? Take any of the, the Fonda versions of uh, uh, my morning song. All right. Well, I'll pick out a nice one for you. And again, thanks for joining us. Thank you, everybody out there, for joining us. And we will see you next time. Stay tall, everybody. <laughs>
Thank you.